night. Matt Laswitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast. For each week, my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, what's going on this fine evening? Question for you, Matt. What did you want to be when you were growing up? Well, that depends on when you ask. Young Matt wanted to be a paleontologist. High school... College Matt wanted to be a writer. This Matt is just happy to be doing this show and <laughs> to, to help make the drudgery of a nine to five job feel like it's worth it. How about you? So my grandfather was never officially diagnosed, but he was mentally disabled. He held menial jobs most of his life. And the one he had when I was a wee one, he was a garbage man. So the first time that I ever told my parents I wanted to be something, I wanted to be a garbage man. It's important work. It is. It is. You know, here's, you want to know something? This is a thing my father told me. And my father, my father's a character. And over the course of my young life, he held many different jobs, often losing them because he thought he knew better than the young whippersnapper who was, you know, actually running wherever he was working. He was invariably right, but tact was never my father's strong suit. Still isn't to this day. But the first thing my father tell me, the first time, the first thing you do when you start a job, you become friends with the custodial staff because they've been there longer than everybody. They know everything and they will be there long after everyone else is gone and those are words to live by absolutely i made friends with somebody on the staff at my job uh unfortunately he left after about a, a couple of months but i enjoyed talking to him yeah, they, it, they, was, it was his dream to go see a football game at alabama and i got him and his family some tickets you're a mensch you're a mensch brother will well, we are here to talk about Batman or Batman adjacent things. And this little bit of sunshine is, is not going to last into this episode. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> what are we talking about tonight, Matt? Because this week we're tying into the release of the final issue of James Tynion IV's stellar Joker series. Uh, so we're catching back up with the Joker, including one of the major bat works that we haven't talked about yet. Our first story the Killing Joke. Yeah, this is Batman the Killing Joke, written by Alan Moore, with art by Brian Boland, colors by John Higgins or Brian Boland, depending on the edition you're looking at, letters by Richard Starkings, edited by Denny O'Neill and Dan Raspler. The cover date is July of 1988. The Joker sets out to execute an audacious plan to prove that all that stands between a normal person and him is one bad day. Where the fuck are we going to start with this? Well, yeah, I doubt there is anyone out there who's listening to a Batman podcast who is not familiar on some level or another with The Killing Joke. Content warnings abound on this book. Possible sexual violence, possible spousal abuse, all manner of unpleasantness. This is a book that 
is problematic in all capital letters. And I think I'm going to open with a question that we're going to answer at the end. But everyone out there, I want you to think about this as we talk about it. Is there a book that exists that is more technically proficient, a sign of its times, and has aged as poorly as The Killing Joke? That is sort of what we're going to have to come back around to at the end of this discussion, because there's a lot that winds up needing to be discussed when you're talking about The Killing Joke. What edition of The Killing Joke were you working off of, Will? Oh, oh, I was I was working from the deluxe edition, which includes the shitty stuff from Batman Black and White. Yeah, in color here. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, I mean, I have a first printing of The Killing Joke, but not easily accessible. So I was working also off of that deluxe edition, which is fully recolored. Brian Boland went back in and recolored the entire book himself. It does not have the original John Higgins colors. So it is a very different reading experience. I looked at a few bits on YouTube and other places online that did side-by-side comparisons of some of the pages that were changed. And it varies from sequence to sequence whether or not I think there was any improvement in recoloring this book. But that's a quibble that has to do with additions and not with the overall presentation of the book, which is what we are here to discuss. This is an ugly comic, not art, not like physically ugly on the eyes. It's quite the opposite of that. But Alan Moore, at one point in one of his screeds against modern comics, said that something to the effect of he wished that there hadn't been 20 years of comics based off of a bad mood he had in the 1980s, which I think might have been more of a reference to Watchmen than to Killing Joke. But this is Alan Moore in his worst mood. None of this is good outside of visual, sequential storytelling. If you confine it to that basic, narrow parameter of using the medium to tell a story, it's good. It is a technical achievement. That story, however, is terrible. Terrible on like a Batman on the abstract level and then terrible, obviously, for what it does to Barbara. And it's just, I hate that you have so many authors who grew up that grew up with this as a foundational text. I, like, I can't imagine reading this and looking up to this as, wow, this is the pinnacle of what Batman comics should be. That basic little synopsis that I read that avoided all of the specific details The general concept of the Joker trying to prove that madness and sanity are a very thin razor line between them. I think that is a good idea for a story. Absolutely. If you took just just take the fucking book of Job, right, and replace Job with Gordon and run him through an entire set of challenges. But what we basically get here is Barbara's shot 
And you have these allusions to what's done after that. You have these pictures that are taken and shown to Gordon. And that's it, right? There's no, there's no real challenge here. I don't even think the book lives up to its basic premise. You know, it's out of what, 50 pages, right? Uh, yeah, somewhere right around there in the 50 to 60 range. It's too long to tell a short story. And it's too short to be what it aspires to be. So I, I did not think this was good. Even, even putting all of the story and problematic elements aside, this is my first time reading it. And I, if the name on the front was not Alan Moore, if this was not one of the texts that everybody talks about, I would say this is just terrible and not worth anybody's time. I didn't read this one at the ridiculously young age that I read some of this Batman stuff, but I was still way too young. I was 13, 14, maybe. Because this had a mature readers label on it back in the day. This had a suggested for mature readers. So many comic book stores wouldn't have sold it to somebody younger than that. Probably many of them wouldn't have sold it to anybody under 16 or 17. But fortunately, I found a comic shop that didn't give a shit. And so they sold it to me. But at 13 or 14, this is edgy. This is the height of, you know, edgelord whatever. And so that appealed to me then. But this is a book that has the returns on it have diminished each time I've read it because it's mean. There every bit of it. There isn't a redemptive moment short, maybe of Gordon standing up at the end and telling Batman that he needed to bring Joker in by the book that they need to prove that their way is right and better. But that's not earned. You don't see. And it's one panel, one fucking panel. You don't see Gordon fighting back against the Joker. The Joker breaks him. And yet suddenly somehow he's not broken. There's not any character for Gordon in here. And that's what this book is missing. That and missing, not fridging Barbara. This was dubiously canonical when it was crafted. This might not have been canon. It was absorbed into canon by Jim Starlin referencing it in Death in the Family. Because they talk about what Joker did to Barbara. And you see Barbara in a wheelchair at Jason's funeral. But this wasn't necessarily going to be a canonical story. Because it was something that, you know, the normal kid buying Batman off the spinner racks couldn't get. But it became canon and it became central. And it also, despite the Joker saying to Batman the line about, if I'm going to have a past, I prefer it to be multiple choice. So many writers since didn't take that for what it meant. And instead took these flashbacks as the gospel truth. It becomes a big plot point in the Gotham Knights run by A.J. Lieberman, which is not a great run. And it was central to the three Jokers. Oh, God. We're going to have to cover eventually. You can't make me mad. (laughs) Well, no, but I'll I'll fucking quit, Matt. You know, someone might have to pay us to do it. But... Uh. 
Wait, is, what did, does does that make us whores? Yeah. Nah. Uh, it's good. It, it's noble work. Again, and speaking of books that are just mean spirited and pointless, we'll we'll get to the three jokers someday. Again, I this needed another 20 to 30 pages to make it a story that is worth all the accolades. You're absolutely. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Chain of command. Mm-hmm. One of the one of the all-time great Star Trek episodes, Chain of Command Part Two, I think specifically. Uh, when we see Picard, of course, it's been memed now. You know, there are four lights, but that is such a wonderful study in torture and how Picard refuses to break. And he has that moment at the end where he says, I was almost there. I was almost ready to tell that Cardassian whatever he wanted to hear so it would stop. And so it's not only the study in how strong a character Picard is, but it's also an admission that every man has his breaking point. Every person has their breaking point. And as awful as torture is, that episode shows it. It shows physical torture. It shows mental torture. It, it has you believing that Picard would have broken. And as, you know, as, you, you, you just said we needed that extra time here. We needed that extra space. On the other hand, I don't trust this Alan Moore to have done it in a way that wouldn't have been awful. And we also needed more time. If those flashbacks were meant to be anything other than hollow window dressing, because this proto Joker is do you feel sympathy for this guy? It's, it's a strange concept, right? Because we just, we see this guy who's clearly in on over his head and yeah, it's equivalent of just keep or stepping on the rake a hundred times. Like, you know, he's in with these guys. He clearly has no idea what's going on. He's not making it as the comedian. His wife has this weird line about him being good in the sack, which was one of the more, stray random things in this book the wife dies he still has to go through with you know breaking into the it wasn't ace no no ace chemicals is somehow next door to the playing card company where he used to work well he worked at ace chemicals they needed him to lead him to lead the gang through ace chemicals so they could break through the wall into monarch playing cards oh okay and oh there was there was no guards there and oh wait they changed it now and now the gang's mad at him oh he's going to be the red hood because i don't know you feel like they are taking advantage of him clearly but i mean you know what he's going to become you have seen him already you know do the most heinous things that you can imagine in the book i was surprised at how early Barbara is shot in this thing. Like she's shot in the first 15 pages. Oh yeah. The, the sequence with the wife that needed more space because there's a lot that's packed into those two pages and none of it is given any room. There's a moment where she says, Oh, and he sort of spins on her and it's like, Oh, he's got a temper. But that's not fleshed out. There's a line about the landlady and you see this panel of the landlady with the cat. It's sort of like, let's just build a stereotypical poor schlub story with this guy. 
but there isn't enough to it to make you feel sympathy for him. And then the wife is fridged. The wife is killed. So you feel bad for this guy because no other, you have no other reason to feel bad for him. He chose to quit his job to do something he was clearly not going to be good at. He got in with these mobsters who are clearly going to kill him the minute they don't need him anymore. I mean, this is a book that has fallen out of favor with a lot of people. And a lot of it is because of the rampant misogyny and fridging. But I think there's a lot more systemically wrong with this book than that. This can't even serve as a good characterization of Batman, right? The thing that struck me, this book opens with like this metaphysical take on Batman, like him speculating, oh, one day I will kill you or you will kill me and it doesn't have to be that way. That's not an authentic Batman. Batman is not metaphysical. He would never say out loud, one day I might kill you. We have seen plenty of circumstances where he might think that we have seen him be tempted, but he would never say that out loud. And that was such a strange, strange note to open the book on. And then you get that line of dialogue calling the fake Joker replacement, like a slime ball or whatever. And that didn't seem all that authentic. And then Batman basically disappears for the rest of the book. Yeah. I think there's, an interesting counterpoint with the Joker who never shuts up and the Batman who barely speaks. But I don't know if that's intentional or if that's just there wasn't any room for Batman to say anything with the Joker who's constantly talking. And the ending is the ending is a problem. That laughing in the rain thing is not good. I mean, this is the Joker just paralyzed Barbara and tortured Jim. And Joker tells a moderately amusing joke. And I mean, I guess Moore is doing something with the balance between them and this and that. But it feels really uncomfortable and unearned. And I don't like it. This was a book that Tom King has read a bunch. Yeah. However, it is stunning to look at. Yeah. Brian Boland is a tremendous talent and Moore knows how to structure a page. Because as far as I remember or know of his work, Alan Moore is one of those writers who writes incredibly detailed scripts to the point that the artist doesn't have a ton of control over what's going on on the page because of how in-depth Moore's scripts are. The full circle-ness of the opening on the rain and closing on the rain, the different panel structures, it's really well structured as a piece of graphic storytelling but style does not fix substance and i understand i know there are people out there who i'm sure are art people and i guess for someone who appreciates art over story that this might win the day but i 
am a story over art person and the story here is so bleak that it just doesn't age well and we've seen this before we've had this problem but not to this extent with everyone loves ivy you know that was a beautiful stretch in tom king's batman but the story was simply just not great it wasn't not great to this level but beautiful art cannot save bad ideas it can't save destructive ideas this is a story that has you know i think i at one point or another somewhere made a comment about how dark knight returns gave us 30 years of a certain type of batman but i don't think that's right entirely i think killing joke is far more bleak because dark knight at the end at least there's this hopeful air to it there is no hope in the killing joke unless you can somehow buy that that last page is batman the joker finding some sort of peace in laughing together and why would you want those characters to have peace after this book (laughs) right i think this book is carried by the names of the creators and the fact that it has been viewed as a foundational text i don't think it lives up to that when looked at from a lens of anything other than history i feel the same way in many respects with To Kill a Mockingbird. I ha- I was in a local theater production uh, of it and you had to sit with that play and think about it and think about the story. And it holds Atticus Finch as a hero. Atticus Finch helped perpetuate a broken system. The hero is the man who inevitably dies to uphold this system. Right. This is not a feel good story about a white savior. This is about a system in which everyone has their hands dirty. And Atticus himself is just a classist. He's not even a good white savior. Like there's a specific line in in our version of the play where, you know, he tells Scout, don't say the N word. That's common. Right. He's just. Ugh, I can't stand how people hold that book up as some shining example. I mean, I, I would still th- say we teach it. I'm not in favor of banning it, but we teach it as shit. Much like maybe we should teach Killing Joke as shit. And I think, honestly, we're both agreeing with Alan Moore. I don't think Alan Moore is proud of this book. Poor cranky old man. Just, yeah. just you know what? Go back in time. Do a better contract for Watchmen and everything is going to work out better for you. You won't be so cranky. You'll make more money and you'll fuck over DC instead of you getting fucked over so bad. And I'm sorry you're fucked over, right? I, hey, creator's rights all the way. But I mean, you signed the contract, man. I'm sorry. I I think, but Will, it's time to make some people mad. Okay. That means it's time to put the killing joke on the big board. So we currently have 120 stories on the big board. 40 episodes in the can. Yeah. Number one is Batman Year One for Batman Volume One, numbers 404 to 407. 
Number 25 is Sleigh Ride from Detective Comics 826. Number 50 is the Doomsday Book from Detective Comics number 572. And coming in at number 69, nice. I am Batman 0 to 3. Number 75 is Riddler in the Dark from Legends of the Dark Knight, numbers 53 to 55. Number 100 is Your Face is Your Fortune from Batman Volume 1, number 15. And down at the very bottom is Batman White Knights. So what are we going to do with the killing joke? Uh, I'm not putting it in the top 50. I mean, it is. You can't make me. It's a hard thing because this is viewed as foundational. This is viewed as one of the great Batman stories. But it is a highly problematic story that I do not believe has aged well. I think answering that question from the beginning, I do not think there is a book that is more technically proficient, but has aged as poorly as The Killing Joke has. The Boland art is incredible. All right, this is going to be really dumb. This is exceptionally dumb. The only thing in my mind that I can think of that has aged as poorly, Ace Ventura. Oh, that is an interesting call. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, in all fairness, I don't think anyone ever held up Ace Ventura as high art. And I think the <laughs> joke is, is held up as this pinnacle of comic book art. But, you know, when it comes out, it's just this silly, feel-good, goofy Jim Carrey comedy. But the punchline at the end is a vile attack against trans people. Oh, yeah. It is a... Yeah, you can't watch that movie anymore. No, 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 no. Uh, we, we say, especially as we record on June 1st, the first day of Pride Month. So, uh, hell's bells. If this book were less technically proficient, this would be towards the very bottom of the list. Yes, absolutely. Uh, this would be in the widening gyre Earth One country. Right. Earth One is equally you know, visually stunning, but it is, I would say Earth One makes the same kind of bad choices but it is more fundamentally damaging to Batman as a character. And nobody's really paying any fucking attention to Earth One. Yeah, I... This is the hardest book I think I have feel like we've had to rank. Because, listen, come at me. Come at me on Twitter. I, I will tell Don't fuck on Matt, though. Don't fuck on him. I will take it because we are not going to put this book in a, the place that a lot of people feel like the killing joke should be. This might be our controversy episode. This might be the one that gets us all those listens and all that attention by, you Ooh. know, putting the killing joke way lower on a list of Batman stories. This is often put as the number, the greatest Joker story ever told. And I've never felt that way. Uh, excuse me. That the greatest Joker story ever told is uh, Tinian's Joker. At this point, yeah. I mean, a, f- a five-way it's, revenge. It's, it's the greatest Gordon story ever told. Yes, d- absolutely on that. I always thought five-way revenge is a better Joker story. Because at no point does O'Neill try to make you feel any sort of sympathy for the Joker. 
I truly fundamentally believe there are some villains who are just villains. I don't need to feel sympathy or understand why the Joker is the Joker. I feel the same way about Hannibal Lecter. Some people are just born wrong. Darth Vader. But, you know, not every villain needs to be Magneto. And that's something we reached at a certain point. Every villain needed a tragic backstory in the same way that every hero needed a tragic reason to be a hero. No, some people are just good people and some people are just bad people. And you can argue psychology, you can argue nature versus nurture, but there are some people who are, to quote Alfred from The Dark Knight, some men just want to watch the world burn. Michael Caine. Michael Caine. Michael Caine. Michael Caine. Okay, so listen, this is not cracking the top, definitely not cracking the top 35. Again, I just told you, I'm not putting it in the top 50. Okay. See, I'm actually looking. Can we meet somewhere in the low 40s? I'm not putting this story in the top 50. Then I think we might need to put it at 51. (laughs) Because (laughs) I'm looking at 46. 46 was where I was looking to put this. Maybe 47. I could be talked into 52, actually. Because 50 and 51 are Doomsday Book and Fear for Sale, two of the Bar Davis issues that are beautiful Alan Davis art. Not as good looking as the, Bo- as the Boland art, but those are fun, wacky, just at the edge of pre-crisis. And while more gets so much, I do like the idea that the Joker has this fundamental idea that sanity, insanity is the thing you escape into and that all it takes is one bad day. That's, I mean, and the problem is every writer since has tried to take that and build on a good idea that exists on feet of clay or on, you know, sand right at the edge of the tide. I like 52. Okay. I will. I'll, this is what we call compromise. Uh, 52. It is held my goddamn ground. I don't know what you're talking about. Compromise. Sometimes, you know, I guess I just, you know, I was not willing to fight for the killing joke that hard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, come in and stand for this terrible book. Cape for cape for this awfulness. Yet still, I don't know if we're going to get anything that goes higher tonight. Because uh... next up is Joker. This is the original graphic novel by writer Brian Azzarello, penciled by Lee Bermejo, inks by Mick Gray and Bermejo, colors by Patrick Mulhill, letters by Rob Clark Jr., edited by Will Dennis, with a cover date of December of 2008. In a story narrated by a third-rate crook, Johnny Frost, the Joker is released from Arkham Asylum and sets out to reclaim his territory, and woe be unto the criminal who stands in his way. 
this was released to coincide with the release of The Dark Knight, which you can absolutely see the influence of in the art. Bermejo's Joker has the Heath Ledger scars. I read this book when it first came out, and I remember not being in love with it. I reread it, and I'm still not in love with it. I'm not sure how I feel about it. It's it's like just bland, instant mashed potatoes. I don't think there's anything inherently bad to it, but it doesn't stand out. It's not interesting. It has kind of the same core concept of The Dark Knight in that it takes Joker and places him into a world of relatively grounded mobsters and trying to gain territory and all this stuff. But, you know, The Dark Knight had the the benefit of being a big budget movie and having just the on-screen energy and whatever, you, however you want to describe Heath Ledger's performance. This just is just flat and boring. I didn't really get the point. Like I wasn't, I wasn't aggravated by this book. I wasn't anxious for it to end, but now that I've, I've finished it, I'm just like, why did that need to be a book? This is the kind of Azarello that doesn't impress me. We've read some Azarello we've liked. We love that one issue of Super Heavy, but this one leaves me, as you said, flat. There are a couple of really ugly, problematic moments in here. I don't think Azarello knows what to do with Harley. Does Harley actually no. speak in this book or is she just there? It could be read in a certain way as it to not be Harley. Because to my read, and just not even like not spending a whole bunch of time on it, isn't she just a stripper at the club who just happens to be in this Harley Quinn costume? I wondered about that myself because I initially was like, oh, that's ugly that they're doing this to Harley. But it's it just, yeah, because she doesn't do anything particularly Harley. She's just sort of there. And Harley's a character with presence. And it seems like a waste to use Harley in that manner. And very little should be taboo in writing and storytelling if it's handled well. However, there are things that need to be handled with a degree of delicacy because of how they affect people. And trigger warning, skip forward maybe three or four minutes. If sexual assault is a particular trigger for you, understandably, there is a bit where after Two-Face grabs our narrator, Johnny Frost's ex-wife, they free her from Two-Face's clutches. And then the Joker just sexually assaults her in the back of a car very casually. And he tells Croc, who's his henchman, you know, give her as much money as she wants and drive her wherever she wants. And he just walks away. And it's such an, a sour note for me. I was confused by that entire sequence. I did not pick that up in my read, but I will absolutely believe you. And I will retract my bland, not offensive mashed potato statement. Well, the, the I, thing about it is it's so, that's so muddy that maybe I'm the one who misread it. No, 
look, I'm going to defer to you and on all questions of reading. Because uh, remember, I can't read. The sequence just before that, like I just didn't even understand that whole confrontation with, with Two-Face and then Two-Face, I didn't get, what was he driving at when they talk about the marriage? Like I did not understand that at all. Please explain that to me like I'm an idiot. I've thought about that as the, the marriage is the synergy of the two halves of Harvey, that he's married to, that the, the two parts of Two-Face are married to each other. That's the only thing, because it's obviously not a reference to Gilda, because that doesn't seem to make sense. So I, I'm assuming that they're talking about how Harvey is two halves together, maybe? And then I also got the idea that somehow Joker was having some kind of information that was going to be blackmail over Harvey, because like after that, like the whole scene just kind of diffuses. And I've again, I'm very confused. There's that line that Harvey gets later when he when Harvey goes to Batman and, you know, I figured out a way to murder one of us. And that seems like Joker suddenly had some way to commit some sort of psychic psychological surgery or something to remove either Harvey or Two-Face. But this spends so much time doing some things and not enough time doing others. And again, I feel like you're supposed to care about Johnny Frost. And I don't. No, he knows what he's getting into. And he gets himself, he gets in way over his head. It's his hubris. You're not supposed to empathize with the, the, the hubristic, tragic figure. You might pity him, but you don't how, empathize with him. How many times in this book does he say, I wanted to be a big shot, and now I'm a big shot? It's, it's strange to have him, one, narrate this, and two, to expect your audience to have any kind of sympathy for him. In the end, he gets what's sort of coming to him. And he's a schmuck. When he tries to, to lord his presence as Joker's sort of right hand over Killer Croc, like, <laughs> wow, you're an idiot. And I, I don't think any of these characters read in a way that I'm expecting that character to sound. Penguin doesn't really come off that penguiny riddler doesn't either oh 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 we have a new contender for worst riddler design oh yeah i i made that note that this riddler actually looks more like a douchey pickup artist than either mutton chops or goatee riddler uh, he's got like the belly button tattoo and the converse sneakers and none of that is a good idea weird um, red hair why is penguin referred to as abner here i'm pretty sure that's the joker just being a dick and calling him by the wrong name intentionally calling him by the wrong name to belittle him why abner though i'm not sure that could have been made more clear by the penguin correcting him saying you know it's oswald and then the joker just continuing to call him abner is that a reference we're just not getting? Maybe. <laughs> uh, I, 
I just, I assumed it was that and just went with it. Maybe it's just a different version of the character, but I don't understand. Yeah, I, I assumed that it was just the Joker being a dick. So strange. And I can't figure out, there's a sequence that I like and that makes a certain degree of nihilistic sense where the Joker burns down his own nightclub rather than letting Two-Face do it. Because that's a very nihilistic, jokery sort of idea. But then you see him crying in Harley's lap about it. And that's not the Joker. The Joker doesn't look back on things and weep. And I mean, again, I might be reading this. This is a different version of the character. And thus, I should give it some slack. But I don't feel like that is in character with any version of the Joker. So some quick Googling uh, on the DC fandom wiki. Apparently, this just continues into um, Batman Damned. Like, they continue this um, Abner thing. And I would have thought that Azarello simply made that mistake and didn't realize that the Penguin's name is Oswald and not Abner. Except I'm pretty sure he gets it right in Flashpoint, where the Penguin there is Thomas Wayne's right-hand man. I'm pretty sure he's Oswald there. And Flashpoint came out in between the two stories. Yeah, he's definitely Oswald in Flashpoint. I have to stop thinking about that or my brain is going to melt. The visuals were much more interesting than the, than the story. I'll say that. Yes. Oh, yeah. Lee Bermejo does a great job in this book. I really like his design for Croc. Azarello has invariably, when using Croc, and he's used Croc quite a bit, stuck to a more mobster Croc, a more guy with a funky skin condition than a you know mutated crocodile monster man. He does it in uh, Broken City, the book he did with uh, Eduardo Rizzo, and he does it here. And I like that design for Croc. Yeah, I think, one, Croc should not be anybody's henchman. And two, it makes more sense for him to be like, just like Penguin, not some kind of weird monster, but just kind of a, a person who you don't want to mess with. Yeah, there are flashes of the Joker in here. There are a couple of neat Joker moments, but again, they're few and far between. Oh, and there's a whole riff on the killing joke in the scene where the Joker goes to a mobster to reclaim his territory. And the Joker's sitting there and he's eating shrimp in the same way that the crooks who made him the Red Hood stuff shrimp in his mouth. I'm fairly certain that's got to be an intentional homage that I only would have picked up having read the two stories back to back. And there was also that weird, in, in Killing Joke, there was that weird use of, of colors in that scene with his wife. And it's like, what the sausage or entrails and that that also made me think of of all that and that's again from only from that deluxe edition that was not colored that way in the original version so that Weird. was very intentional here 
I don't know what Azarello was trying to say with this story. If he was trying to say anything, it's lost on me. I would hazard to say that he was trying to say nothing. But there is this thing that said at the beginning and said at the end that I'll read it from the end. I'm on top of the world looking down. You know what I see? Do you want to know what I see? I see you, a disease, one that has been around longer than Gotham, the city infected, a disease that's older than my city. Hell, it's probably the same disease that built the first one. There will always be a Joker because there is no cure for him. No cure at all. Just a Batman. Listen, I will not say that I am the greatest literary mind, literary critic in the world. Of course, I'm not. I'm recording a Batman podcast. I'm not writing for the New York Times book review or whatever, or some great literary journal. Hey, hey, let me stop you there. There's the, there's a meme going around Twitter right now. You know, it asks, are you the most famous person from your high school? And it's okay if you're not, because the most famous person from my high school is in federal custody right now because he said some dumb shit in North Korea. Ooh. Yeah, just... Just a little bit of light treason, but it's okay. So we don't we don't have to be the most the most famous. We don't have to be the best. We just have to be the best people that we can be, Matt. So we don't have to write for the New York Times. We just have to have the very best Batman podcast that we can have. That is a, a very good point. But you're not going to run across a lot of people who know their Batman better than I do. Absolutely not. Who have done a lot of studied literature and such that whole speech that i read there feels like the kind of thing you write when you want to sound deep and that there's not a lot of substance underneath it i don't know what the theme here was and i'm not sure what it was supposed to be batman's never gonna kill joker joker's never gonna go away gotham's always gonna be evil and bad but thank god there's Batman. I guess something to that effect anyway. I, I don't have much left to say here. That means it's time to put Brian Azzarello's Joker on the big board. This doesn't beat Killing Joke because Killing Joke is more foundational. As good as Bermejo's art is, Boland's is better. And while I don't agree with anything that the killing joke was trying to say, at least it had a thesis that ran through it and ran true versus this. That's just sort of there. It's a fart in the wind, Matt. Yeah. And it's not even an entertaining fart. So that puts it down in the, the eighties, I would say eighties or nineties. The 90s are definite fart in the wind territory. I'd say the grim night at 95 was more interesting. Yeah. I think that might be where we drop it. We drop it at 96. Works for me. We are not making any friends tonight. (laughs) Although I don't think this one has a ton of people who remember it as all that great, but I'm sure there are people out there who love this book and we did not make any friends on this one. P 
people love the weirdest, dumbest things. And hey, I'm sure there are things that I love that people are like, why the hell does he love that hokey thing? And look, the only thing I ask of people out there is just to understand the thing that you love is not great because you love it. I would go downstairs right now, pour a couple of fingers of bourbon and watch Ernest Goes to Jail because it's a movie from my childhood and Jim Varney is fucking fantastic. Is Ernest Goes to Jail a great movie? Absolutely not. I'm not going to to waste time on the internet arguing, oh, this is underrated comedy masterpiece. No, it was written by a schmuck. All of the Ernest movies were written by a schmuck. Poor Jim Varney should have had better writers. But yeah, just understand that, you know, just because you like a thing doesn't mean that it's good. And And you don't have to argue that it's good. And it's okay to like something that isn't good. If you enjoy it, great. I have a real soft spot. I really, one of my favorite movies to watch around the holidays is one of those God awful movies made for the Hallmark channel. It stars (laughs) Brandon Ralph of Superman returns and legends of tomorrow as a, a good natured firefighter who finds a stray cat and takes it in and meets the cute veterinary student. And they fall in love. Guess what? It's terrible. It is a terrible fucking movie, but I think Brandon Routh is charming as hell and I love cats. So guess what? I watch that friggin' movie every holiday season. Uh, I I will. I will watch almost any bad action movie. I will curl up with my cat and watch any movie with a cat in it. That is central to the plot because every now and then Bess will walk over to the television, especially if there's a kitten and get up on her back paws and lean against it and try to touch the cat on the screen and it's the goddamn thing and so i don't want anything with cats what a good girl she's the best she is the best sweet little dumb dummy dumb all right but now that we've got those two now for something completely different we've got our final story the joker's double jeopardy this is the joker volume one number one Written by Denny O'Neill with pencils by Irv Novick and inks by Dick Giordano. No colorer or letterer is credited and it is edited by Julia Schwartz. Cover date of May 1975. When Two-Face is broken out of Arkham to commit a crime, Joker is offended that Harvey Dent is believed to be a greater criminal mastermind than him. So he sets out to foil Dent's crime. We've done one of these before. We did uh, Luther, You're Driving Me Sane back in our previous Joker episode. Currently at 89 on the big board. This is fun. As was Luthor, you're driving me sane. As are a lot of these sort of wacky Bronze Age stories. This is Denny O'Neill. Denny O'Neill writes a fun, fine Joker. This book, as all of this series were, are hamstrung by the code. The series is called Joker, but the Joker can never win because the code insisted that crime always pays. So the Joker had to wind up. Crime always doesn't pay. Right. Yes. Crime always doesn't pay. The Joker had to wind up back in Arkham at the end of every issue. So every story you had to either ignore that or start off with the Joker breaking out of Arkham. Every time at the end, he had to wind up back in Arkham. This is what makes Arkham look like a friggin' sieve. 
Yeah, I do like that idea as kind of a fun inverse of like the Batman 66 trope of like every episode he breaks out of the, you know, the trap. I do like a, a recurring Joker series where every episode or every issue he winds up back in Arkham. Like that's that's kind of cute. That's kind of silly. I'll say here that I think the previous issue was inherently more interesting because it was Joker interacting with Lex Luthor. Here, this seems kind of like just another day at the office for Joker. Like, uh, yeah, he's going to run into Two-Face. He ran into Two-Face in the, the Azarello book. It's inherently less fascinating as a story. Other than the fact that that Joker you're driving me Luther, you're driving me sane, fit specifically with an episode theme about the Joker becoming sane again. That is the issue that's viewed as the best issue of that series. That and then issue three where the Joker runs afoul of the Creeper because it was two, you know, wacky, zany characters bouncing off each other. This is fine. There's some fun bits and boy, howdy, does a Denny O'Neill two-face love the number two. Ugh. I mean, to, up to the point where he beans the Joker with a bowl of fruit that is full of pears. P-E-A-R-S. Yeah. Yep. I, I saw that and I'm like, why the fuck is it a bowl of pears? And then the next page, oh, pears. Okay. All right. I see yeah. what we're getting at. And hey, Harvey still hasn't learned your lesson, Will. Just, just smash and grab, man. Just fucking just get the thing do you just you don't have to it doesn't have to be an elaborate trap Danny loves but of course harvey's like aha i'm i'm committing this robbery at 2 a.m i'm not waiting until the second haha oh harv we're gonna touch eventually on silver age stories that have some some real depth to them some real merit for discussion we haven't run across a lot of them yet I've really been putting these in as trifles when we have episodes that have a lot of heavy stuff otherwise. But this is, I mean, you're right. This is not as inherently interesting as the Luthor story, but there's a lot of fun here. I love the Joker tied to the, the saw machine. There's something about putting the Joker in that kind of peril that is funny. That hackneyed bit. And that, oh, he's going to be cut in two. And of course, Joker can't help but remark on, oh, come on, come on. This is this is old. This is tired. Batman does appear in a newspaper photo. So this does count, by the way. If you're Batman, aren't you going to want like the, the local paper to not advertise that you're in Paris? I wondered, because I haven't read this story in forever. I was like, is Batman Alvarez, is this some kind of trap that he's working or something? Because it just seems so awfully coincidental that Batman's out of town and this guy suddenly decides to break Two-Face out of jail. I did like the twist at the end. I did like that Harvey got played. I thought that was a fun beat for the end of this story. Like, oh, not so clever as you thought you were, are you, Harv? I was less in love with the fact that the Joker and Two-Face knock each other out and are found by security guards. That that felt like okay. that that one felt like, well, we're running, we've run out of pages. So they knock each other out. Game over. You'd think with a book that was 
introduced to be a Joker ongoing, you would have started building up some of his henchmen as supporting characters. You would have learned who they were. But here, they're just the same generic henchmen that you run across. They don't get names. They don't, I, I don't even, I wanted to go back and look at that Luthor issue and see if the henchmen the Joker has there are even drawn as the same henchmen here. But th- this series was nine guess 10 because there was the 10th issue that was produced and never released uh, that were 10 single issue stories. So I don't think that that was really something they were thinking about doing. Trying to think if this Alvarez character could be Bruce. It's, I mean, we know by the end it's not, but I thought for a minute there, he was going to be, that was going to be Bruce or that flamboyantly dressed museum curator was going to be Bruce that Bruce might've come back and was wearing those outla- that outlandish outfit because he was now expecting Harvey to come after the doubloons. I mean, come on, two-faced gold doubloons. That's just asking for Harvey to come after, or two heads. And what did Denny O'Neill have against the Charmin commercials? I don't know. Talk about a timestamp. Right, that was Charmin, right? Yeah, yep, don't squeeze the Charmin. You know whose first on-screen credit was from... Uh... Uh, a don't squeeze uh, the Charmin commercial. I, I do not think uh, Adam Savage. Really? I think huh. I want to. I'll. I want to get that right. Yeah, you are correct. You are correct. Well, you learn something new every day. I'll just. I'll just say that it, that was his first. If it wasn't his very first, it was damn close. I mean, I, I think this Joker is properly petty. I always like a Joker who absolutely believes he's the greatest criminal mastermind in the world. And anyone who disagrees with him, you know, he's got to take down a peg because the Joker is a massive ego. Pay attention to me. So I I like, I like that. I, I thought the gags while not, you know, knee slappingly fall out of your seat. Funny were amusing. Oh, I mean, and Irv Novik is a very solid Bronze Age artist. You know, he's really in the Neil at at least the illustration. Maybe it's Giordano who who did it or helped with it, but it had a Neil Adamsy sort of vibe that worked. Did you give the credits for this? Uh yeah, but the the credits are not they're abridged. We didn't get the the colorer and the letterer were not uh, listed. Oh, I um, I could remember if you had given your usual disclaimer about uh, oh, Julie Schwartz or not. Yeah, uh, yes, I, I missed it. But we're going to have to give that one a lot because Julie Schwartz edited a lot of comics. Yeah, good point. Problematic Creator Watch, Julia Schwartz, noted sexual harasser. I, I'm going to have to say it every time. And so I'm going to get to say that a lot. I mean, there's not a lot here. There, there's not a lot here, which is fine. This is just fun. And after the previous two stories, I put this in here for just that reason. It's just fun. Comics can be fun. I don't have anything else. That means it's time to put the Joker's double jeopardy on the big board. Well, you said it. It's not better than Luther. You're driving me sane at 89. However, I still would probably put it above the Joker graphic novel that we just put in at 96. This is a book that isn't saying anything and knows it 
and accepts it and is fine with it versus a book that is trying to find meaning in sound and fury signifying nothing? I think I like it better than um, Last Chance and Bouncing Baby Boy, 93 and 94. Yeah, I, I was going to say I want to put it I was going to put it right right at 93 below Haunted because again, Haunted, for me. Haunted is a good concept that needed more pages. Well, they can't all be winners. No. Tonight was not a night for winners. But hopefully next week will be. Because next week, we're going to be reading three stories by the same writer as he takes over as writer on the main Batman title. We're going to be looking at three Batman or Batman-related stories from writer-artist Chip Zdarsky. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote, June, Conduit of Outdated Joke Names, that's a mouthful, June. Joshua Wheel, Abigail Hartbaum, <laughs> Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Sam Hopper, Kyle Still, Christian Smith, and John Wickham for their support. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Amazon Music slash Audible, and on ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon, where you can get shout outs, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLaz1013. And I'm at Will Nevin, and I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat roundup of new Bat books, for my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.